We're in Matthew chapter 13 this morning. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30 and verses 36 through 43. Sometimes before I preach, I point out to people that this could be the last sermon that you ever hear in this life. And that truth has brought home, been brought home to me this week because a man who was with us last week is not here in this world today. Many of you know Kevin Gennett. He usually sits right about there, rides his bike around the neighborhood, helped manage the apartment property right down here on American Street. He died this week. And so pray for his family that they would be comforted. And let it be a reminder to us all that life is short and death is coming. And this very well be may be the last sermon that I ever preach or the last sermon that you ever hear. And so may God prepare us to meet with Him. Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, and verses 36 through 43. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into the barn. And in verse 36, Jesus' explanation of this parable. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the, at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for His words. Thank you for the wonderful news we heard this morning at Sunday school about being hidden with Christ. Thank you, Lord, that death cannot harm those who are in Christ. Thank you that we have hope. Thank you that whatever we're going through these days will soon pass away. 
and we will see our Savior face to face and He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Lord, thank You for Your grace and mercy that You've shown us this week. Thank You for bringing us back here today to hear the Word of God. Father, we pray that You would keep distractions from us. The heat may distract people from hearing the Word of God. We ask, O oh God, that You would use the heat to remind us of hell and judgment, that it is freezing in here compared to what the, the wicked will face in hell. And so remind us of that fact, O oh God. Father, let the shortness of life sharpen our senses and awaken us, Lord, to truth and reality and the fact that death is coming and hell is hot and judgment is righteous, but heaven is glorious and Christ is a great Savior. Father, teach us what this parable means and apply it to our lives by your Spirit. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Last Lord's Day, we began our study of Jesus' parable of the wheat and the weeds or the wheat and the tares, which Jesus uses to teach us truth about what the kingdom of God is like. And last week I stated eight truths and I have one more, so I have nine this week that this parable teaches us. Number one teaches us that Jesus did not come the first time to immediately bring about the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. Number two, as the kingdom of heaven comes, the righteous and the wicked will dwell together in the world until the final judgment. Number three, some of the wicked will be hypocrites and false professors in the church. Number four, sin and the wicked will remain in the world until the final judgment. Number five, there will be a great separation of the righteous and the wicked in the final judgment. Number six, we must exercise a measure of patience until the day of final judgment comes because God is patient. Number seven, at the final judgment, all sin will cease in the kingdom and all the wicked will justly be cast into a fiery hell forever. Number eight, all the righteous will shine like the sun. They'll be glorified and be with Christ forever where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And number nine, though there will be great opposition, God will accomplish all of His purposes for His kingdom and no obstacle, no devil in hell will ever stop Him. And so let's think about this passage together and see these truths taught to us. Number one, let's look at the players in the parable and the meaning of the parable. Remember, we looked at the parable proper last week, and so this is part two where Jesus gives the explanation. Look at verses 36 through 39. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age and the reapers are angels. And we're going to look at each one of these players one by one. But notice first, Jesus' disciples want to know what Jesus' teaching means. 
Verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into a house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And I I just want us to notice that, that Jesus' disciples are interested in what Jesus says. They're interested in what he teaches. They come to him asking, what does this mean? Tell us, teach us. They're hungry for what Jesus taught. And I think that's a good reminder for us. Are we hungry for what Jesus taught? Do we desire to know Him, to know the meaning of His Word, to to understand His teachings? Beloved, do you hunger and thirst for the meaning of Jesus and His teachings? I would just encourage you, like these disciples, ask for it. Ask Him for it. You have places in the Bible you don't understand. Ask Him to show you what He means. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of the other elders. Uh, Ask, what does this mean? Seek Him. Sit at His feet like Mary and learn from Jesus. And we see the disciples do that in our passage today. And then Jesus does answer their request. He tells them what this parable means. Verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And we've seen this term before. This is Jesus' favorite self-designation of himself, the Son of Man. And it conceals, it conceals who he is. He's a man, but he's not a mere man. It also reveals He's also the divine figure who has everlasting rule and dominion from Daniel chapter 7. And so the Son of Man is the sower. The Son of Man is the sower of of the seed in this parable. Now, beloved, I want you to notice God is the sower. God is the sower in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, 7 and 9, Therefore thus says the Lord God, for behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. God Almighty is the sower, and in this parable, Jesus is the sower. So again, what is our conclusion? Jesus is God, and He's sowing the good seed. Brian shortly comments, He, Jesus, is teaching that all the good seed that exists in this world comes from His hand. All the spiritual truths taught, every bit of grace applied to the soul, every newborn heart, every true confession, and everyone who is sanctified unto God is a direct result of his person and work. That is what he's saying here. He's in charge of the gospel. He's in charge of people who believe in the gospel, and he causes it to happen. Jesus is the sower of the seed. Verse 38, the field is the world. The field is the world. Many in church history have interpreted this parable as a parable about the church, and they take the field as the church. Well, world in the Greek means world, not church. And yet I was surprised at how many interpreters that we would respect and and think highly of take this as the church. D.A. Carson writes, Augustine struggled against the Donatists, which was a strict Pharisaical faction that taught withdrawal and separation from the world, who were overzealous in their excommunication practices, went so far as to say that a mixture of good and evil in the church is necessary, is a necessary sign of the church. Most reformers followed the same line. Calvin went so far as to say that the world here represents the church by synecdoche, which is a figure of speech in which a part is made to represent the whole or vice versa. I disagree with Augustine. I disagree with Calvin. Because the Bible says the field is the world. 
Just like we as congregationalists disagree with our Presbyterian friends that when we do church discipline, you're to take it to the church. It doesn't say take it to the elders. It says take it to the church. Some things are just so plain to me in the Bible. Louis Burkhoff writes, it is closely related to the church, speaking of the kingdom, though not all though identical with it. The citizenship of the kingdom is coextensive with the membership in the invisible church. Its field of operation, however, is wider than that of the church, since it aims at the control of life in all its manifestations. And remember, in the last sermon, we went over seven different ways the New Testament speaks of the kingdom of God. R.T. France comments, the parable is usually understood as depicting the mixed character of the church in which true and false believers coexist until the final judgment. And I do believe that is an application we can receive from this parable. But in Jesus' own ministry, this was not yet an issue. And in verse 38, the field is identified as the world rather than the church. So the canvas is broader than the specific issue of uh, church discipline. Jesus announced God's kingdom, and this would lead many of his hearers to expect a cataclysmic disruption of society, an immediate and absolute division between the sons of light and the sons of darkness, as the men of Qumran put it. Yet things went on apparently as before. It was to this impatience that the parable was primarily directed. God's kingdom does bring division, and that division is final, but while it is already present in principle, its full outworking is for God to bring about in the final judgment, not for man to anticipate by human segregation. Of course, this has its practical application to the search for a pure church here on earth, but of God's kingdom, uh, but the perspective is wider. It is, as to the two following parables, uh, it is as in the two following parables, that of contrast between the present hiddenness of God's kingdom and its future consummation when the righteous, who are now barely distinguishable from the sons of the evil one, will shine like the sun. So again, the, 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 the field here is the world. Brian Schwartley gives uh, several reasons why this must be taken as the world. Number one, it is extremely unlikely that Jesus' disciples would interpret the world as the visible church. Number two, Jesus just said the good seed were the sons of the kingdom, the church. So the field can't be the church. I love that one. The sons of the kingdom is the church. You are the church, beloved. Three, at the final judgment, Jesus will remove all sin and lawbreakers from the whole world, not just the church. And number four, the main focus of the parable is on the delay of God's judgment. That's the focus. And so that's our number one. Remember from the introduction, Jesus did not come the first time to immediately bring about the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. Notice, beloved, Jesus Christ is the one directing and ultimately doing the harvesting in his own good timing, not us. So get the context of this parable. Many Jews who were listening to Jesus teach, even his disciples, expected the Messiah to conquer all of God's and their enemies now. They expected that to happen. But Jesus didn't come to do that in his first coming. Remember, John the Baptist had questions about this. Are you the one? Because it seems like evil is getting the upper hand. I'm in prison here. Are you the one? Because we thought the one was going to come and make that division now and set up the kingdom. Are you the one? Because it seems like evil is still winning. 
That's why Jesus tells this parable. Remember James and John suggesting calling down fire from heaven and bringing judgment now? The Jews were expecting Jesus to make this division now if he is the Messiah. They were even asking this in Acts 1-6. After Jesus had died and risen from the dead, Acts 1-6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And, and so Jesus tells this parable to help them understand, yes, the kingdom is here. I'm the king and, and it is here, but there, there's a not yet. And, 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 and the wicked and the righteous are going to live together until the final judgment. So be patient. Because God is patient. And, and that's, our, that's our number six from the introduction. We must exercise a measure of patience until the day of final judgment comes because God is patient. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And, and the reason for this patience, the parable tells us, is so that every one of God's elect will be saved. Doesn't want the, the good seed to be rooted up with the weeds. God is patient. He's not willing that any should perish. Every one of His elect will be saved. And so God is saying, wait. It's not yet. Some of those that you want fire to come down on heaven, I'm going to save. I'm going to redeem. They're my elect for whom Christ died. And so God is patient. As Jesus, the Son of Man, spreads His Word in the world while He preached then and through His people after He ascended into heaven, He creates children of the kingdom, the good seed. And at the same time, the devil, the enemy, shrewdly works to deceive and blind people in the world so that they look and act like children of the kingdom, the weeds in certain ways, but are not born again. They're not true, genuine Christians. Even as our, our brother Jack testified, he thought he was. He prayed the prayer. He walked that aisle. But he didn't know Christ. That's the picture we have in this parable. They're, they're not true, genuine Christians. These weeds, hypocrites, and false professors will naturally often be found in Christian churches because they will outwardly look a lot like the children of the kingdom, but they are not. And so all that to say the field is the world, not the church. A side application about the world a side application about the world. Notice that this sowing of the seed is done in all the world. In all the world. Every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation Jesus is going after. And we want to notice that and pray that God would get everyone from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. David Sitton said once at a conference I was attending, 90% of all Christian workers in the world labor in 7% of the world that is already most reached with the gospel. You get that? 90% of Christian workers in the world labor in the 7% of the world that is already most reached with the gospel. Most missionaries go where they're, they're not most needed. <laughs> Why is that? Because you'll get killed if you go to the other places. You might get killed. They don't want you there. So we go where it's easy. Pray for more workers to go to unengaged, unreached peoples. Sitton wrote a book called Reckless Abandon, which he defines to give oneself unrestrainedly to the cause of Jesus and the promotion of His kingdom without concern for danger and consequences of that action. 
And he writes about, in that book, Ed McCulley, one of the missionaries that died with Jim Elliott. And Ed McCulley had written an impassioned letter to Jim Elliott. Remember the, the five that were, 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 were slain to death trying to reach the Waldani Indians in, in Ecuador in the 1950s? Uh, Ed McCulley had written an impassioned letter to Jim Elliott describing how the Lord was compelled compelling him to be a missionary and Ed wrote to Jim, I have only one desire now to live a life of reckless abandon for the Lord, putting all of my energy into it. Maybe he'll send me some place where the name of Jesus is unknown. Later he wrote in his journal, I'm willing to give my life for a handful of Indians. And then David uh, was captured by this vision and 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 went, went with a guy named Joe Cannon to, to be, be a missionary in Papua New Guinea. And, and Joe Cannon told David, come with me, brother. I can teach you. I can mentor you. There are not many who will go with me into the jungles and swamps and high mountains. Come with me. Let's go get some of them for Jesus. And so David went. And when they got to Papua New Guinea, Joe set David down and said, Joe began my orientation in his kitchen table in Lay, Papua New Guinea by sliding a burial form across the table to me. What's this? I asked uneasily. With a husky laugh, Joe said, Brother, I told you back in Texas we'll be walking four or five days into the jungles and mountains. You may die in the bush or they may kill us when we get there. And if you die somewhere along the trail, I'm not going to haul your carcass back to the coast. <laughs> and then he says, Jesus is worth it. Lord, make us this kind of people. That's a side note that the Son of Man is sowing seed in the world to the nations. The good seed, verse 38, is the children of the kingdom. Again, beloved, this is the church. You want to know who the church is in this parable? It is the sons of the kingdom. The church is a people. The church is not a building. That's why I often try to say, anytime I'm talking about doing something here, come to the church building. I add building. That's a theological reason I add building because this building is not the church. <laughs> come to the church building because the people are the church. People are church. The people of God is the church of God. The sons of the kingdom are the church. The good seed is the church. And notice what a glorious name we have. We are children of the kingdom. We are sons and daughters of the living God. We are adopted by God. We are loved by God. We are protected by God, provided for by God our Father, saved by God our Father, and sanctified by God our Father. We are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. These are counterfeit followers of Christ, like the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. In Jesus' time, those were the weeds. They were looked up to by the people, thought of as the religious ones, knew the Scriptures well, thought of as those who really had it tight with God. They are the weeds. And in our day, they may look and act a lot like Christians, but they are not believers. Jesus warned of them. Brother uh, Jack spoke of this passage in Matthew 7, 21-23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so many, many people 
on the day of judgment will think they know Jesus as Lord and call out to Him and they'll testify of they've done many things in Jesus' name. I went to church in your name. I taught Sunday school in your name. I did this in your name. I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I did miracles in your name. And Jesus will say, I never knew you and cast them into hell. Paul spoke of these kinds of weeds in 2 Corinthians 11, 12 through 15. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Remember we talked about how the weeds look like the grain until it's immature? At first it looks the same. And, and, and this is exactly what Paul is saying. The Holy Spirit through Paul is warning us that, that Satan dis, disguises himself as an angel of light. And so his, his seed that he sows, his weeds, they will also disguise themselves. And so many things in the world, beloved, that are dangerous to your soul, they come at you looking good. They quote the Bible like Satan. They're often on the TBN, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, which many uh, people keep preaching there deny the Trinity. And so they come quoting scripture. They come very, very eloquent. They're the best preachers. The heretics of the church has been the nicest people. They help the poor. They, they lay themselves down for the poor. They, they speak like no one ever spoke. They use scripture and they lead people to hell. Because they're not doing the will of, of God in heaven. These are the weeds. These are the weeds that we're to watch out for, we'd be careful of. And I think it's healthy. I do this. Lord, am I a weed? <laughs> Every once in a while, do a little self-examination. Uh, uh, Lord, am I a weed? Save me, Lord. Show me. Show me what my greatest loves are. Show me what my idols are. Show me where my heart is. I want to be yours. I want to be all yours. I want to give all myself to you, Lord. Holy Spirit, show me. Convict me. Search me and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And assure me that I'm your son. Well, the enemy who sows the sons of the evil one is the devil. The devil. There is a devil. Beloved, there is a devil. He's real. He's our enemy. And he's actively working against God. He's God's enemy. And actively working against us and our faith and our lives. Even using those he plants to work against us. And so the Bible warns us, 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We're called in James 4, 7, submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Ephesians 6, 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Believe God's word. Believe God's word. The harvest is the close of the age. Beloved, there will be a final judgment. There will be a final judgment. There will be a close of the age. There will be a harvest. There will be a day where God raises up the dead and everyone will give an account for every idle word they've ever spoken, every deed and every thought. There is a final judgment Jesus teaches here. 
Verse 39, the reapers of the angels. Jesus will send His angels to carry out a separation on the day of judgment between the righteous and the wicked. And there are some details, notice, in the parable that Jesus does not focus on in His interpretation of His own parable. Notice that, because that's helpful even in further interpretation of other parables. And since Jesus doesn't focus on these particular players, we should not focus on them or give them more importance than Jesus does. And we should be careful how we interpret them in our interpretation. And, and their interpretation can't contradict anything Jesus has said in His interpretation of the parable. And it can't contradict anything in the rest of Scripture. And so, look at uh, chapter 13, verses 27 through 30. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then you do, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and the har at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus doesn't tell us who the servants are or what the situation is in which these servants would go and gather the good seed up immediately. The master's instructions, Jesus' instructions to these servants is not to gather the good seed yet, but to let them grow together until the harvest. And I, I, I do understand this as God's merciful delay of the day of judgment so that all His elect will be saved. Craig Keener comments, God tolerates the wicked in the present for the sake of His elect. God endures the wicked in the present to provide all those who will receive Him time to become His followers. But the focus of Jesus' interpretation of His parable is on the final judgment, not on how we should deal with those who are living in unrepentant sin in the church. Some could wrongly use this parable to contradict Jesus' later teaching in Matthew 18 about punitive church discipline. But we must obey Matthew 18 as well. I wonder if you see what I'm getting at here. Some people could wrongly read this parable and say, see, we shouldn't practice church discipline. We shouldn't weed out the weeds in the church and, 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 and remove people from membership because Jesus says, let them grow together. Well, number one, we've already said the field is the world, not the church. And number two... You, <laughs> Jesus never contradicts Himself and He teaches us in Matthew 18. That if there is someone in the church, right, who professes to be a Christian, who has become a member of the church, and yet they uh, are in unrepentant sin. Not that they're in sin, that would be all of us. We would all be cast out. But they're in unrepentant sin. And so they're married and cheating on their wife. Well, what should we as a church do? Just let that go? Oh, it's okay. Don't want to weed you out. You just keep committing adultery. No, we don't do that. That would not be loving. That would not be righteous. That would not be godly. That would not be obedient to Christ. And so we go to that man and say, Sir, we love you. We care about you. And Jesus says to be faithful to your wife and only be with her intimately. And you are sinning. You are committing adultery. Repent. If he repents, we've won our brother. If he doesn't, 
I take Michael Osborne with me and we go confront him. Jesus said, take two or three with you. We'll get to it in Matthew 18 and confront them about their sin. If they repent, we've won our brother. Praise God. If they don't repent, I come to a business meeting like today after church and say, church, this is what's going on. So-and-so is having an affair, cheating on his wife. If you have a relationship with them, reach out to them, pray for them. We got to get him back for Jesus. And we try. We try to persuade him that he's in sin and call him back. And yet Jesus said, if he won't listen to the church, then treat him like a tax collector and a sinner. In other words, we remove him. 1 Corinthians 5, we remove him and turn him over to Satan so that he might see his sin, be convicted of his sin, repent of his sin, and come back to Jesus, come back to the church, and come back to his wife. That is what the Bible teaches. That is what Jesus taught. That is what's loving. Patting people on the back in their sin and saying, you're okay, we're okay, we just love you, is hateful. It's hateful to them. It's hateful to God. And if we did that, we would be the ones at the end of the age where Jesus said, I never knew you. Because you're not doing the will of my Father, which Jesus clearly lays out in Matthew 18. So we should never use this parable to contradict what Jesus says. Because it just doesn't. The field is the world. (laughs) Not the church. So this covers number two and three in our introduction. As the kingdom of heaven comes, the righteous and the wicked will dwell together in the world until the final judgment. And yet there is a side application that I would make. (laughs) Some of the wicked will be hypocrites and false professors in the church. There will be. I mean, that's a reality. Because they're in the world, they will also be in the church. And we want to pray that God would help us be a pure church. That that God would reveal hypocrisy in our own hearts. That God would would reveal the truth about all of us and and, and for, for our good and for our sanctification. Point number two, the judgment of the wicked. The judgment of the wicked. Look at verses 40 through 42. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them in the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so this is number four and five from our introduction. Sin and the wicked will remain in the world until the final judgment. And number five, there will be a great separation of the righteous and the wicked at the final judgment. And notice what Jesus says here. There will be hellfire judgment. Verse 40, the weeds are burned with fire. Jesus spoke of this fire. Mark 9, 47 through 48, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What a providence that on the day we talk of the fiery burning of hell, it's fiery in here. God's sovereign over the weather. He's sovereign over that it's like a hundred something. He's sovereign over that, that we'd be here today and hear that when I'm going to talk about a fiery hell. This is the end of, of the wicked. This is what the wicked deserve. The, the, the wicked deserve to be cast into hell where, where God is very present in His judgment, pouring His wrath and curse out on the wicked. 
And, and, and beloved, this, this is what we deserve. This is what Joseph Randall deserves. Sometimes I, 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 I talk to people and I, I say, they say, how are you? And I say, better than I deserve. And, and sometimes people will say, oh no, no, you're, be- you're better than that. They just don't know. They don't know God's standard of holiness and righteousness. They, they don't know the, the evil of, of sin and, and, and that's what we deserve. Jesus shows us this is what the wicked deserve. Friend, the Bible teaches that all of us have sinned and, and fallen short of the glory of God. We, we've sinned against a good and a righteous and a holy God by the things that we've thought and said and done and not done. And, and because of that, we deserve God's wrath. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that God loves sinners. Even in the verse that Brother Jack read, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, in in the great love with which he loved us, and, and so, so God did something to save us from this fire. He, he did something to save us from this uncomfortability. I mean, you're feeling a little uncomfortable right now, right? I turn my fan off because I don't want it. I want to feel uncomfortable. And that's nothing, nothing compared to hellfire. Oh, friend, this is paradise. This is bliss. This is unbelievable air conditioning right now. Freezing cold right now compared to the hellfire in God's judgment in hell. I feel cold just talking about it. And God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die on that cross and bear that hellfire so that you will never face that judgment. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The God-man died. He suffered that fire of wrath and he was buried. And on the third day he rose from the dead. He conquered sin, death, and hell. So that if you, if I, turn from our sins and believe in him, we shall be saved. This is the gospel. This is the good news of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friend, have you believed in Him? Have you trusted Him? He will save you today. If you've not believed, trust Him today. We would love to talk with you about this salvation. And and he, He then makes you a son of the kingdom. He adopts you into His family and saves you from that hellfire judgment. And also, beloved, notice at that time, at the final judgment, verse 41, all that causes sin and lawbreakers, all lawbreakers will be cast into hell and the kingdom will be fully purified. The evil one and and all of his temptations, the demonic activity will be done and stopped and canceled forever. All sin stopped forever. All sinners, lawbreakers, evildoers, those who are tempted to sin, those who tempt us to sin, all of them will be cast into hell forever who don't know Christ. R.T. France comments, out of his kingdom does not necessarily imply that the sons of the evil one were once in it, but that they will have no place when it is fully consummated. And so we looked at those different ways God speaks of the kingdom of of God and many who receive the privileges of the kingdom but didn't truly believe on Christ will be cast out and judged. Notice how this parable reveals the identity of Jesus. 
The Son of Man's kingdom is the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the Father. We see that in this passage. So Jesus is God. D.A. Carson comments, what is clear is that Jesus ascribes to himself the role of eschatological, that's a big word that means end times, judge, that Yahweh assigns himself in the Old Testament. Jesus in this parable is doing what God does in bringing judgment. And notice, God sends angels for judgment. Revelation 16, 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Kevin DeYoung comments on Revelation 16, 1. These judgments come at God's command. He tells the angels when to go and when to come. Beloved, notice who does that in our parable? Jesus sends angels for judgment in our parable. Jesus is God. God is the director of the harvest in the Old Testament. Isaiah 27, 12. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. Jesus is the director of the harvest in this parable. Jesus is God. Philip B. Payne comments on this. Out of Jesus' 52 recorded narrative parables, 20 depict him in imagery which in the Old Testament typically refers to God. The frequency with which this occurs indicates that Jesus regularly depicted himself in images which were particularly appropriate for depicting God. Not only do these parables depict Jesus as performing the work of God, they implicitly apply various titles of God to Jesus. The sower, the rock, the shepherd, the bridegroom, the father, the Lord, and the king. Our conclusion is that through these parables, Jesus implicitly claims to be God. Amen. And in all of this, we see our number seven from the introduction at the final judgment. All sin will cease in the kingdom and all the wicked will justly be cast into a fiery hell forever and ever and ever. But that's for them. That's for them. What for us, beloved? Finally, point number three, the shining of the righteous. Look at verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This verse harkens back to Daniel 12, 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. It reminds us of Judges 5.31, which we're studying on Wednesday night. Thus, let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love Him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. We, the people of God, are being conformed in the image of the risen Son, Jesus Christ. Romans 8.29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Beloved, this is our hope. This is our future. No matter, no matter what you're suffering now, the trials you're enduring now, the hardships you endured this week, this is our future. It is guaranteed. Like Brother Anthony was teaching us this morning, it is as good as done. Christ has done it. He's seated at the right hand of God. It will happen because He will bring it to pass. We will shine like the sun. Philippians 3, 20-21, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Revelation 19, 7 and 8, 
Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Beloved, this is our eight and nine from our introduction. All the righteous will shine like the sun. They'll be glorified. They will be with Christ forever where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That's our future. Fullness of joy, full satisfaction, and pleasures forevermore. And number nine, though there will be great opposition, maybe you felt some of that opposition this week, maybe you feel that opposition in your own soul as Satan tempts you, tempts you to curse God and die like Job's wife said. Though there will be opposition, God will accomplish His purposes for His kingdom and no obstacle. No devil in hell will ever stop him. And beloved, this is true. This is true because there was a day the sun did not shine. We will shine like the sun because the sun was dark over the Son of God when He died on that cross and suffered for our sins. In Matthew 27, 45-46. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took all that for us. And the sun ceased to shine. And He died for our sins and rose again to guarantee that someday, beloved, we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Christ Jesus rids of every weed. He's Son of Man who sows good seed. God's children of the kingdom freed from every sin and hell by greatest deed. He bore God's wrath. He cried and bleed. He died and rose. Life's guaranteed. By faith alone, we're just indeed. Every sin and evil breed that Jesus' holiness impede will be cast out in fire concede. There's weeping, gnashing, teeth decreed. But righteous ones who Christ do heed shine like the sun, their father's seed. So trust in Christ with earnest speed for He alone meets every need. All other joys He will exceed. Father, we thank You for our great sower the seed. We thank You, Lord, that You are a great Savior. We thank You, Lord, that You have sowed the seed in us, that You have made us Your sons and daughters, that we have the hope of glory, that we have the hope, Lord, of, 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 of shining like the sun someday. Father, we pray that wherever there are hypocrites and false professors, Lord, that You would save them and cause them to be born again. Father, we pray that you would help us to be patient, Lord, uh, that we would be patient in evangelism, patient in discipleship, and love one another well. Father, we pray that we would trust you, that you will bring justice, that you will bring judgment. We pray that we would be sowing the seed around the world and telling the nations about the gospel. And Father, we pray that we would trust you that you know best. We pray that you would help us trust you that your purposes will happen and you will carry all of your purposes no matter what. And so God, help us trust you, help us obey you, help us delight in you, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.